Thank you, team. You can go ahead and be seated. And as you are, welcome to Crossroads Church today. It is good to have you uh, wherever you may be tuning in from, whether that's Fort Lupton, online, here at Thornton. Uh, it is good to be uh, here today. If you were brand new with us and I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Matt Mann. I'm the senior pastor uh, here at Crossroads Church. And I'm grateful uh, that you've decided to spend this hour of worship uh, with us today. We are in uh, week four of a series that we're doing called When Life Gives You Lemons, where we are walking through the book of Philippians, which is this book written by the Apostle Paul and really is all about how do we live with joy in this world? What does it look like to live lives of joy? And part of this series that's been just so fascinating and fun for me as the senior pastor here is in week one, I kind of threw out a challenge and I invited you to come along with me and to read every day the book of Philippians. It's not very long. You can do it in 15 minutes. It's just 102 verses. And to uh, walk with me uh, in that road and just spend some time reading. And what's been really cool is over the last couple of weeks of hearing how many of you uh, took that challenge to heart and actually reading through it. Not only are you just reading through, but God's also cultivating within you uh, something brand new of just, just new ways of seeing him and experiencing him through that. And so, uh, man, that's just been cool. If you are like new or you haven't done that for whatever reason, like there's still time. Like we have one week left in this series where you can just spend this week joining with us. Like I said, 15 minutes a day, just reading through the book of Philippians. It'll, it'll be well worth uh, those few minutes spent. All right. Well, with that, if you are brand new, what I want to do today is just to kind of catch you up onto where we're at in the series as we uh, really begin to move into Philippians chapter three. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get them ready there and turn there. But if you've been with us through this series in week one, really what we looked at uh, from Paul's perspective is to really understand what joy is. And we came away from week one understanding that joy is really this deep confidence that we have that regardless, regardless of your circumstances in this life, that all is well between you and God. That no matter what difficulty or pain or disappointment or failure or rejection or any other challenge that's going on in your life that you are facing, that you and God are good. That is, that's true joy in life. And then week two, we looked at joy and said really kind of the secret of joy is really being able to have this eternal perspective where we as believers are able to look at the long game, as you will, um, beyond this life and really into eternity. And then week three, we talked about how oftentimes when life gives us lemons, that we oftentimes, our tendency is to meet that with grumbling and complaining in our lives. And that there's actually a way, while that may be our tendency, there's actually this way that we can move past the grumbling and the complaining and move and experience true joy in our lives. Now, all of that is really the setup to today where we're going to talk about joy in the midst of suffering, joy in the midst of suffering. And the reason that we're going to talk about that today is actually because of the promises of the Bible. Now, as people of faith, we love the promises in Scripture, don't we? Like, we know the Scriptures, we, we hold on to these promises in the Scripture. For many of you, you've even memorized some of the great promises in the Scripture. Maybe you recognize a few of these. I'm just going to run through some of them. In Deuteronomy 31.8, for many people, this is a life verse. It says this, that the Lord will never leave you, nor will the Lord forsake you. The Lord will never leave you, nor will the Lord ever forsake you. Like this is one of the most famous promises in all of scripture. In fact, when I was working on my sermon this week and I was typing it into the word processor, Google finished the sentence for me after the first three words. Like this is how famous this promise is in the scriptures. Or maybe you know this one coming out of Matthew chapter 11. It's Jesus speaking. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. 
for the tired soul, for the wearied person, for the burdened. There's no greater comfort in all of the world than, than knowing the rest that is offered through Jesus. Or maybe this is one that, that's resonated with you through the years. This comes out of Isaiah chapter 40. It says, those who hope in the Lord, that he will renew their strength. That here at Crossroads, this is such a significant promise to this church that we actually have it etched in glass at our community center in the pulpit that we use there in the chapel. Maybe one more for you, Jeremiah chapter 29, 11, maybe the most famous promises of all where the Lord says, for I know the plans that I have for you, the plans to prosper you, the plans to keep you. Like there's something so comforting about this promise, isn't there? Something so encouraging about this promise to people of faith that knowing that there's this big God out there and even in a world full of billions of people, this big God knows our name. That this big God knows us personally. This big God has a plan and has purpose for us. I mean, when we go through the promises of scripture, there's just something in us that just resonates deeply within them. We, we memorize them, we hold on to them, we teach them to our children. However, there are these promises in scripture that we don't memorize, that we don't teach to our kids, that these promises are the promises that God's people will suffer. Like, for example, when Jesus in John chapter 15 is with his disciples, it's on the eve of his crucifixion, and he looks out at his disciples and he says these words to him. He says, if they persecute me, you better believe, boys, they're going to persecute you too. Or later on, Peter is writing to a group of churches, and Peter was, you remember, one of Jesus' disciples. He had to be remembering these words that Jesus spoke on the eve of his crucifixion when he wrote to the churches. He says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you. That's the suffering that you're dealing with in this life, which comes upon you from your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, what Paul says is that when suffering and trial comes into our life, let's not like act like it's a surprise. For Christians, this shouldn't be unexpected for us. Or later on, the apostle Paul writing to a young man named Timothy, actually the same Timothy who's now sitting beside Paul as he's writing this letter to the Philippian church in jail. And he writes to young Timothy in Second Timothy chapter three, he says this, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul says, you got, you got a desire to live a godly life? You wanna serve God? You wanna live right for God? Then expect suffering. Expect persecution to come in your life. See, the biblical reality is that the more earnest that we become in our following of Jesus, the more committed we are in seeing the unreached peoples of the world come in contact with the gospel, the more that we go about exposing the darkness in this world, the more that we will suffer. That's the promise. That's the promise. It's a promise that we should know. It's a promise that we should memorize. It's promise, it's this kind of promise that we should prepare for and teach our kids to prepare for. So in light of these promises in scripture, I want to help us prepare for the suffering that is ahead for us by looking at Philippians chapter three in the words of Paul. And in doing so, I want you also to see that you are totally able to have joy even in the midst of suffering. So in Philippians chapter three, Paul begins with these words, Philippians chapter three, starting in verse three, he says this, he says, for we are the circumcision. Now let's just pause here because this is weird, 
right? Like nobody walks around going, hey, you know what? I'm the circumcision. Are you the word circumcision? Like, like that's not what's going down, all right? So let's just explain this really quickly. I'm imagining most of us know what circumcision is. And in the Old Testament, when it came to circumcision, circumcision really was an outward sign of being set apart from the sinful world. That circumcision among Jewish boys, Jewish men, was a sign that they were living for God, that they were in service to God. It was this ritual that indicated what must happen to the human soul. That is, sin getting cut deeply from the innermost being, innermost part of our being. Now, for the Jews... They got a little tripped up because oftentimes what they saw or what they confused was that circumcision was a means to salvation, that if you were circumcised, you were saved. And never was that the case. Not even in the Old Testament was it the case that it was always a picture, it was always a sign of what needed to happen in the innermost being of our souls. And so when Paul says that that we are the circumcision, what he's not referring to is the physical act of circumcision. What, he was, what he's referring to is that those of us who are in Jesus, that we, that we have experienced God's word like a sword that has thrust deeply inside us and begin to cut out the most sinful parts of our souls. That what we have experienced internally is what, what the Jews experienced externally and what it was once a sign of. That we are the people of God. That's what, that's what Paul's writing here. That we are the circumcised. That we are the people of God. Who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks that he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have even more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, every believer has a testimony of how they came to faith in Jesus. And your very testimony of coming to faith, your very being of coming to faith in Jesus is a miracle in and of itself. And whether you think that your story is just kind of run of the mill or whether it's an exciting story of of God's salvation, it is a miracle and it is worthy of being told. It's one of the reasons that when we have people get baptized, we ask them to put their testimony uh, on video and say it on the screen. It's because we believe that every story is worthy of being told, that when God is at the center of our life, to be able to share his story and how he's working in us is one of the most powerful things that we can do. That every story of coming to faith is a miracle and worthy of being shared. And so Paul begins to tell his story to us in Philippians chapter 3. That this was Paul's life. That before Paul becomes a believer, this is his source of of significance. This is his source of of really like, of, of, of belonging. This is his sense of assurance in life. And he begins by really saying, this list of giving us his ethnic pedigree. He says, look, I'm a Jew. And not only a Jew, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, which has significance in that day and age. He says, I'm a Hebrew among Hebrews. Like, like I am a chosen member of the race of God. I'm chosen in this way. And if that wasn't enough, he starts to list his religious accomplishments in life. He says, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness in the law, you can find me blameless. 
See, this was his joy. This was his gain. This was, this was his fortune, that Paul's joy was in the fact that he belonged to the upper echelon of law keepers, the Pharisees. That this was the most powerful group in ancient Israel. And when it came to a society built upon religion, these were the religious elites. And among that group, Paul was the rising star. That he kept the law meticulously. That he was zealous in the way of persecuting God's enemies, at least who he thought God's enemies were, the church of Jesus. That this is where, this is where he found his encouragement. That this is where he got his attaboys for excelling. This is where he got his motivation from God in keeping the law, being blameless in this world when it came to the law. Like if there was ever a person that was going to make it to heaven based on their religious accomplishments, Paul would be at the top. Like Paul had to be at the front of the line. He had everything this world had to offer. And then we get to Philippians 3, 7. And it begins with this word, buts. But then Paul met Jesus. See, this but goes all the way back to Paul's conversion story. It goes all the way back to, to the moment that he met Jesus on the road of Damascus. And maybe you remember it. If not, you can find it in Acts chapter 9 and read it a little bit later. But Paul's on his way to this town called Damascus. He's riding a horse. He's going there to kill Christians. That's what he's doing. He's going there to persecute the church. And on his way to Damascus, Jesus shows up in front of him. The risen Jesus shows up in front of him, literally knocks him off his horse. And as he's laying in the road, Jesus comes and stands over him and he says, Paul, why do you persecute the church? Why are you persecuting me? Over the next couple of hours and the next couple of days, Paul comes to see Jesus for who he is. He comes to see God for who God is. And as he begins to submit his life to Jesus as his Lord and Savior, Jesus says something very interesting in Acts chapter 9 about who Paul's going to be. Do you remember it? Do you remember what he says to him? In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, he says this, that Paul, he is the chosen instrument of mine. That this Paul, he's a really big deal. And I got some plans for him. I got some plans, says the Lord, plans to prosper him, plans to keep him. And those plans include, he's going to carry my name before the Gentile kings and before the people of Israel. Like Paul's going to stand in front of people that are really important and he's going to proclaim the gospel. And verse 16 for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. To which we go, <laughs> time out. Like rewind that. And God says, yeah, sure. Like I got plans for Paul. No, 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 a little bit further than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's gonna stand before kings. Yeah, I got that little, let's go to the end. I will show him what it means to suffer for my name. I mean, we, we love the calling of greatness on our lives, don't we? And oftentimes we forget the calling of suffering that comes with that. See, if suffering is part of our calling, then the question that we need to wrestle with is how do we prepare for that? What does it look like to prepare our lives for that? Well, the way that Paul did that, he begins to explain in verse seven. He says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I mean, just wrap your mind around this for a moment. 
That Paul, Paul looks at his standing among the elites in religious society, the Pharisees. He looks at his glory being at the very top of this group, the privileges and the applause that come with that. He looks at all the hard work that, that he's put in to be blameless when it comes to the law and the moral pride that he has in it. And he prepares to suffer by taking his whole world and turning it upside down. By turning his values upside down. That whatever were gained to me, he says. Those are verses five and six. That's what's his gain. Whatever is gain, those things now I have completed that I've considered or counted as loss. I mean, before his experience with Jesus, it was like Paul had this ledger of his life and it looked a little bit like this. He had two columns and on one side it said gains. On the other side it said loss and under gains was human glory. That he had the, everything that the world had to offer. And on the losses was Jesus. Like the worst thing that Paul could imagine was that somehow this Jesus movement would actually take foot and begin to spread. That this was, this was complete loss to him, this happening. And then one day, Jesus shows up and it changes his world, it changes his life. And all of a sudden he looks at the ledger and he takes out a big fat red pen like your English teacher uses and he wrote on it, loss over the gains and gains over the loss. That he looked at everything that he had accomplished, everything that he had and he said, this is all loss. And then he goes one step further, verse eight. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing truth, the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That everything, everything, everything that I count as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That he starts out by, by counting all of his precious accomplishments as lost. And by the end, he's counting everything as lost except for Jesus. Listen. This is what it meant for Paul to become a Christian. This is what it meant for Paul to become a follower of Jesus. And just in case anyone thinks of this, Paul's experience as somehow unique or just particular to him, Paul wants to clear that up for us. And just a few verses later, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul writes these words to us. He says, brothers, Christians, followers of Jesus, join in imitating me. Like, join with you, Paul, in knowing that God has a plan for our lives? Yes. Imitate me in, in knowing that, that you're going to have opportunities to share your story and the gospel before people that you would never imagine. Yes. Join with me in your suffering. Paul says, yes. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the examples that you have in us. In other words, Paul goes, my experience is not unique, that my experience is normative to the Christian life. And what Paul is doing here is he's showing us how, our, how the teachings of Jesus intersect and interact with our lives. That this is what it looks like to, to live our lives out through Jesus' teachings. I mean, just think with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 13. It's a famous parable that many of you will be familiar with. Jesus is with his disciples and he begins to share this story about a field and here's what he says. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, treasure hidden in a field which a man found, he covered it up and then in his joy, his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Like what's Jesus saying in this moment? What's Jesus teaching in this parable? He's saying that becoming 
a follower of his, means that we discover that he is the treasure chest of joy. And in discovering that, that we have a, a willingness to write loss over everything else in this world in order to gain him. That in this parable, he, he tells of this man who finds this treasure and he goes and he sells everything that he has in order to, to gain this treasure. He sells everything in joy in order to have this treasure. Jesus is all, everything else loss. That's the shift that's happening here in Philippians chapter three, verse eight, that I count things, all things loss at the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, when you become a Christian, what you're doing is you are riding loss across all things in this world except for Jesus. And then when you lose those things, it doesn't come as, as strange or, or even unexpected. Like this is why we prepare to suffer as believers. When we do the pain and the sorrow, it'll be great. When we suffer, there's, there's gonna be many tears like, like the ones that Jesus shed in the Garden of Gethsemane that you will know in your suffering the value of Jesus that surpasses all the things the world can offer. And in losing those, you gain more of Jesus. And come on, my fear, unfortunately, my fear is that this is so foreign to us because for so many people who become Christians, what we believe is that when we trust God, that we're actually trusting God to deliver us, to protect us, to prevent us from significant loss in our lives. And that's just simply not in the Bible. He never promises that. The truth, this truth was realized in my own life when a situation occurred with a group of kids uh, that one of my kids ran with in our neighborhood. It was a deeply traumatic experience for us that I had to have conversations with my seven-year-old that I never dreamed that I would have to have. And thankfully, nothing physically happened to my child, but my wife Sarah and I, we knew, we knew that in that moment, the innocence of childhood was lost in our child forever. And it was traumatic for us. I mean, it, it took years of, of wrestling with God Sorrow, tears, counseling. At some level, I could handle that there was gonna be some level of, of suffering in my life, but my kids? Like, God, we're gonna fight this one. We're gonna fight on this one. And what I came to know, what I came to believe is that I was believing a lie. That I believed that, that trusting God meant God was gonna prevent, that God was gonna keep me from significant loss in my life in my kids' life. And God never promises that. In fact, the only thing that God guarantees that we will not lose as believers is our soul. That everything else, everything else is on the table. It's why we hold tight to, every, to anything. It's why we hold fast to anything but Jesus. That we hold on to Jesus. Now I know that as I share this truth, it, it feels shocking, doesn't it? So let's just stand back for a moment and, and just get our legs and go back to the beginning. That the more committed that we can't become to, to following Jesus, the more we will suffer. That's the promise. That says why as we as believers that we need to prepare this, we need to prepare our kids for this. And we see this lived out in the second part of verse eight, 
where Paul moves from preparing for suffering to actually suffering. He moves from counting all things lost to actually losing all things. In the second part of verse 8, he says this. He says, going back to the beginning, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, at this point, he's not just merely counting things of loss. He's actually suffering loss that he prepared by turning his values upside down and now he's being tested. Did he value Jesus above all things? Do you value Jesus above all things? Do you value Jesus above your career, above your house, above the money that you have in the bank? Do you value Jesus above your kids and your grandkids? Do you trust God even in the midst of suffering? And what we know about Paul as we've walked through this series is that the answer is yes, yes, he did. And the question then becomes to us, then then why does God call us to suffer? Why does God promise suffering? Paul answers this again and again throughout these verses so that we would not miss it. Paul's not passive in his suffering. He's not just allowing it to happen. He's intentional, purposeful in his suffering. He's not going to waste his suffering. And in these verses, he he lines it out for us. His purpose is to gain Jesus. Just listen to this. Verse seven, he says, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse eight, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. For his sake, I count them as rubbish that in order that I may gain Christ, verse nine, and be found in him, verse 10, that I may know him. So we go, what does knowing him look like? And the most significant things in Paul of knowing God looks like this. The power of his resurrection, he says. He says, I wanna know him that way. He says in verse 10, so that I may share in his sufferings. Verse 10, that I may become like him in his death. Verse 11, that by any means possible, but I, that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. In other words, what sustains Paul in suffering the loss of all things is the confidence that in losing the precious things of this world that he will gain something more precious, and that is Jesus. The gain that Paul is talking about twice is translated for us knowing that I may know the surpassing worth, verse eight. Verse 10, that I might know him. The thing that sustained Paul in his suffering was knowing that at the end of the suffering that he would know Jesus better and it was worth everything to him. So let me just name the elephant in the room. For Western culture, there's a tension in that, isn't there? As Americans who are middle class, maybe upper class sitting in this room, there's a tension in that. Do I really value Jesus at that level? See, there's a tension created for us that that when suffering comes, whatever that is, whenever that is, suddenly there's interactions that take place between you and God and we cry out. We cry out to God and go, God, let me know that you're there. Like, God, let me know. Let me know that this didn't surprise you like it surprised me. Like, God, let me know that you care. 
And we, and we go down this and suddenly there's this tension. Suddenly these faith muscles, our faith muscles are being stretched. And for some of us, like, like you know, we've, we've lived our lives so much that, that our faith muscles are just, you know, they're just wimpy. And all of a sudden in suffering, they're being stretched. And we, and we look out in these moments, during these crises, during this suffering, during the pain, and before any of it came, maybe you would like look out at the world and, and you didn't honestly, you probably didn't think much about God, right? Like most of us don't when everything's going the way that it's supposed to, like we don't have a lot of need of God in our lives. And so we just kind of live our lives, don't we? And we kind of just operate like, God, if, if it's all good, like I'll just kind of ignore you and you just kind of ignore me and we'll just, all, we'll just all get along that way. And all of a sudden suffering and loss comes into our lives and all of a sudden our faith muscles begin to stretch to the point of exhaustion and we say, God, like, I don't understand why this is happening. Why the suffering? And Paul says, because in it is intimacy where we might know him more. See, one of the most intimate ways that we can worship Jesus is to identify, come alongside, empathize with his suffering. That's all he wanted from his friends when he was in the garden. It was the only thing that he wanted. And that's not possible to do without experiencing our own mental, emotional, physical pain. Paul says, you wanna know more? Do you want to go deeper with Jesus than just the surface level of faith? Do you want to walk more personally with him? If so, then prepare to suffer. Count everything as loss in order to gain the greatest treasure that you will ever find, Jesus. See, true joy is the deep confidence that no matter what's going on in this world, trials, suffering, pain, hardship, rejection, that all is good between you and God. That that's the peace of our lives and that's where our joy flows out of. Will you bow your heads as we pray? Father, the, um, this promise is a hard one for us. God, we would love to know that you protect us from everything. And yet as we read your scriptures and take the totality of, of what you say to us, that there's certainly, certainly for the promises of scripture that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. That you'll give us strength when we feel exhausted, that you will give us rest when we are weary. And Lord, we hold on to those promises, but Lord, we also realize that there are promises in scripture that we will suffer. And so Lord, I pray Lord, that first and foremost, that you would give us courage to live both the great calling and the suffering that comes with knowing you. And in doing so, Lord, that you would help shape our mind, our attitudes when it comes to suffering in our own lives. Lord, that we would see that the trials that come our way, that they are, they are moments of, of testing. Do we value you above all things? And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. 
Lord, that we would have our own ledger the way that Paul has his. And Lord, in our gains column would be your son Jesus' name. Father, I pray for those here today who may not yet know you. God, I pray that as you whisper to their souls that they are, their eyes are open to the incredible joy and the peace that they can have in knowing you. Lord, we give this to you. It's in your son's name we pray, the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. If you'd like to have a conversation about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, we'd love to have that conversation with you. Our text line you'll see a couple of times today, 720-513-1933. If you simply text the word Jesus, there'll be someone on the other line, on the other side of that, uh, to have that conversation. As a church, we come together for communion and we're reminded and we celebrate the tremendous suffering that Jesus went through in order for us to experience the joy in our lives. That at the cross, we, we don't look upon Jesus in such a way that, that takes for granted the sacrifice that he made when his body was broken so that our, our wounds may be healed. That he poured out his blood so that our sins might be forgiven. And so today we remember and we rejoice by taking the bread together as a church and drinking the cup knowing that this is the cup of our salvation. As we talk about suffering, we know that many are suffering. We want to know, we want you to know that we are here to pray for you. In-house, you can make your way to the banner over the next 20 minutes while people are ready to pray for you. Online, you can simply click the button and, uh, and submit that prayer and we'll pray for you, for you throughout this week. I'm gonna invite everybody in-house to stand and to sing. We're gonna sing the song Brighter Days. It's become the anthem for this series. It's a reminder to us that the brighter days are ahead for us, that eternity awaits for us, that the suffering of this life is just a parenthesis in the breath of eternity. And so today we sing to our Lord Jesus.